We are in a series on uh, the last days in the world to come, and we have been looking at a number of uh, background contexts. Uh, first, the, the world that was, the world that is, and the world that is to come. We looked at the creation of man from the dust of the ground and the breath of God. We looked at that separation of those at death and then the rejoining at resurrection. We looked at the covenants of God. We looked at the kingdom of God on in heaven and on earth. And last week we looked at judgment and salvation, uh, the idea of reward and punishment. Uh, so we're moving now towards really what the questions were that brought this series on when we discussed it back at uh, Yom Kippur. I talked about multiple heavens and multiple hells, and it triggered a lot of questions. So we're to that point. Today we will look at the subject of heaven and hell with primary consideration of the intermediate state and the final state of the dead. There's a lot of confusion in this because of our English translations, particularly the King James Bible, uh, and due to confusion about the immediate state of the dead and the final state of those who are saved and those who are lost. So it's important for us to understand this. I thought about giving you a chart, and I thought, well, I think I can do this without a chart, uh, but I may stick one up on Facebook just so you, so you have it. We're going to start with the heavens. Uh, the word uh, Shemayim, uh, uh, which is the Hebrew word for heavens, plural, um, or orenos, which is the uh, uh, Greek word, uh, again plural, um, that is translated in most Bibles, heaven or heavens um, in the English, is an indication that there is a series of its plural. It's more than, more than one. And so uh, most theologians who look at this, um, uh, and particularly from biblical text, extra-biblical text, we get other numbers. But from biblical text, we, we get the idea that there are three heavens. This is in somewhat based on a passage by the Apostle Paul where he refers literally to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians. And we'll see that verse in a little bit. Uh, so we're going to consider the uh, term heaven as used in three different ways. It's very easy to remember this. I'm not going to give you all the verses. You can use a concordance and find these. And you'll begin to see in the context that the word heaven is being used in, in each of these manners. The first heaven, if you will, is uh, those words translated either heaven or sometimes translated sky is really the atmosphere. It's the area where the birds fly and the airplanes fly and the clouds uh, operate. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 23, the scripture says, well, it's not 123, is it? It's 21. Uh, it's uh, uh, verse 20, I'm sorry. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Uh, this idea of the heavens... Uh, there is a, an open expanse of the heavens that we call the atmosphere, and that's what it's, it's talking about. Now, Jesus refers to this as well in Matthew chapter uh, 16. Um, at verse 3, 
He says, well, let me read the, the three verses. He says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he replied to them, uh, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky, same word, heaven, is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky, again the word heaven, is red and threatening. Do you not know, uh, you, you know how to discern the appearance of the sky or the heaven, uh, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. So this atmosphere, this thing where we say, oh, what a beautiful sunset. We're, we're not really looking at the sun setting. We're looking at the, the atmosphere and the colors in the, in the sky. And that is the first heaven. Um, the second heaven is uh, actually space. We see that in Genesis 1 as well. Uh, remember Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, so that plural. In, in Genesis 1, 8, uh, God made an expanse, and he called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Now, we're going to see that God's going to place in that expanse the sun and the moon and the stars. So it's what, what you and I would call uh, space. In Matthew 24, uh, in talking about uh, the end of time and certainly the subject of our own uh, series here, uh, in verse 29, Matthew 24, verse 29, uh, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the word heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, this notion of uh, the place of the sun and the moon and the stars as the place of heaven. So, so we have two heavens. We have the atmosphere. We have, the, have space. And those are the heavens that we can see. But there is, a, there is a third heaven that literally is called that. But in, it's only called that in the New Testament. In, the, in what we call the Old Testament or the Older Testament. It's given a different name. So we'll look at that by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verse 14. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Now this word, highest heavens, is not the word highest, but the word heaven. It's the heaven of heaven. If you think about that phrasing, and you, and you think about Hebrew, uh, we talk about the tabernacle, and we have the courtyard, and then we have the holy place, and then we have what's called the holy of holies, or the most holy place, translated most holy place, when really the text says the holy of holies, kadosh kadosh, right? So heaven of heavens is the highest heaven, or the ultimate heaven, or the heaven of the place where God dwells. Um, and so that's what's being mentioned uh, often when it talks about the highest of the heavens, um, which then is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is the passage where Paul refers to this uh, in verse 2. 
as the third heaven. He talks about a person who was caught up into the third heaven. So, our references to heaven, most of them in the scriptures, are related to this third heaven, the place of God. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. When the Bible talks about the heavens and the earth, it talks about all of the heavens and the earth. So we have the earth, and then we have the sky, and we have space, and we have the throne room of God. Now we could spend some time on that. I don't have time to do that. Uh, Obviously, if we just think in terms of up and down, then the Australians and us would have a different location for the heaven of God, right? Uh, But the scripture seems to indicate that the uh, heaven of God is in the sides of the north. The Bible talks about promotion doesn't come from the east or the west or the south, but from God. And in statements regarding Satan's rebellion, he says, I will exalt my throne above the throne of God in the sides of the north. So the, the idea is that, that north is the direction of this, this third heaven. Now, the question of distance and the question of space is problematic because we talk about sunrise and sunset and the sun's not actually rising and setting. That's the appearance. So the apparent location of heaven is north. The actual location may be other dimensional. It may be all kinds of things that we simply don't understand. But that's the the language that the Bible uses that. So teaching children about the three heavens is pretty easy. So it should be fairly easy for you. Okay? The, The place where the birds fly is the first heaven. The air we breathe in the first heaven. Then the second heaven, we see the stars and the sun and the moon. The third heaven is the throne room or the place where God dwells. That one works out pretty easy. And so, uh, as uh, Forrest Gump said, that's all I have to say about that. Okay. Uh, now, the, the next one is the more difficult issue, and it is the hells. Um, the, the New Testament... Greek, uh, the Greek New Testament, actually has three different words that are translated primarily in the King James Bible, but in others as well, as hell. Um, and that, that word hell conjures up for us uh, fire and maybe a devil in a red suit and, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno and and various things, some that have biblical overtones and some that are simply superstition. Um, I, when I first discovered that there were three different words and I didn't know which word was being used in my King James Bible, I, I came up with what I thought was an ingenious idea. I took liquid paper and just marked hell out of my Bible. Um, and then I would write in the Greek word over it. Uh, when I was first doing this, I was marking this stuff. And my, my wife came in and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm marking the hell out of my Bible. <clears throat> and she was not amused uh, in that context. Uh, and it reminded me of a story that happened to my dad when he was in the hospital after he had made his profession of faith, somebody, a a dear friend of our family, gave him a New Testament and they 
marked uh, some verses in there. And my dad was in a Catholic uh, hospital and a little nun came in and she picked up his New Testament and thumbed through it and saw the marking and said, she said, those Protestants, they just mark out what they don't believe. (laughs) Everybody interprets marking on a Bible differently. Some people believe you shouldn't touch them. You know, uh, certainly the scriptures in in the original languages we want to treat with greater respect. Our Bibles are really study aids for us. uh, And while we treat them with respect, some people think it's okay to mark a Bible and some people think it's not okay to mark a Bible, right? Some people have a Bible for marking and one for not marking, right? But but that's what what I was trying to do was so that when I get to that place, I know uh, what the heck it was talking about, right? Clever. So, uh, the primary word translated hell in uh, the Old Testament is the word Sheol. And the primary word in the New Testament, the Greek word that's translated hell, is Hades. Now, you know that word, Hades. Uh, drawn from the Greeks. The Greeks had a whole different notion of Hades. But, but the word was used to attach it to the Hebrew concept of Sheol. Okay? So, uh, the place of the dead, called Sheol or Hades... Translated hell, sometimes translated death or associated with the word for death. They both refer to the place of the dead or or what's sometimes called the netherworld. Usually understood as under the earth. And uh, this is a place of the spirits of those whose bodies have been buried in the earth. And their spirit goes to a place of God. And so the idea is uh, Sheol or Hades. Now, I'm going to give you two verses, one that is uh, a statement in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 16, and then we're going to see that that psalm is actually quoted in the book of Acts, and that's where we see the word as Sheol, and we see the word as Hades. The Septuagint always translated the word Sheol as Hades. So those words are seriously connected. In Psalm 16, verse 10, the psalmist writes, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now this text is a Messianic text, uh, but it also uh, is used here by the psalmist to say, Lord, you will not leave me with my soul in the place of the dead, or my spirit in the place of the dead, nor will you leave my body in corruption. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. This is a hope that there will be a resurrection, a reuniting of the soul, that, or the spirit that has been in Sheol, and the body that has been in the ground. It is specifically used of the Lord Jesus by the Apostle Peter, Uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when he is referring to the resurrection of Jesus. And in his sermon, he talks about David. He says in verse 25 of chapter 2 of Acts, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, 
so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades or hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So the idea is resurrection, he says in verse 29, Brethren, let me confidently say regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and we still have his tomb. So this is not in reference to David. This is in reference to the son of David, the Lord Jesus, who would be raised from the dead, whose soul would not be abandoned to Hades and whose body would not undergo corruption. Uh, before he would be raised from the dead. Uh, so this um, notion of Sheol and Hades is a, uh, an important understanding for the place of the dead. Now there's a second place translated hell, and the word for that in the Greek is Gehenna. Gehenna. And the, uh, the passage that we'll use primarily for this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, uh, where Jesus uses the term twice. Uh, he actually uses this term quite a bit when he talks about judgment. Uh, 5, 29 and 30, he says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell or Gehenna. Uh, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, uh, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna or, or hell. Um, now, this is not Hades. This is not Sheol. This is ultimately the final uh, uh, hell, if you will. There's nobody in Gehenna now, uh, it is referred to as a lake of fire. Now, the term itself, Gehenna, means Valley of Hinnon. And the Valley of Hinnon is right outside of Jerusalem. There is, uh, if you're in Jerusalem, there is a valley uh, that leads to the Mount of Olives. And there is another valley that comes up the side of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnon. Uh, it is it is today a park. Okay, so you can actually go to hell in Jerusalem and have a picnic. Okay, uh, but in the days of Jesus, it was outside the city, and they would throw all the garbage, and they would throw the bodies of the criminals, and they would uh, anything that was re was cut off from the city was placed there, and the fire burned constantly. And therefore, it was seen as a lake of fire. And it was of those things which are of no use whatsoever. And therefore, this became the sign of you were in the city or you were in uh, the lake of fire, Gehenna. And so this is the ultimate judgment, as we'll see in the final state. Nobody is there now. Nobody has been there now. And when it opens up, because it's prepared for the devil and his angels, when it's opened up, the first two persons placed in there will be the beast, 
that we call the Antichrist and the beast we call the false prophet. I'll talk about them next week. They will be the first ones thrown into the lake of fire. And that is at the final judgment, as we saw last week, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into there. Even death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. So that's the hell fire of judgment that no one has gone to. Okay? Hitler's not there. He's in Hades. Okay? That awaits the final judgment. So there's a distinction between the place of the netherworld where people are who have died and the final hell. That's the one we probably should use the word hell for uh, because that's what we associate it with, with punishment in that sense. Now, there's a third term for hell that is uh, only found in one place. It's found in um, the, the book of Second uh, Peter, chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning at, well, it's just in verse 4. It says, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. The word there is Tartarus. And it means the place of the damned in Greek. And committed them to pits of darkness. You've heard of outer darkness. That's what this is. Reserved for judgment. So this is a holding place for angels awaiting the final judgment called Tartarus. Uh, it's referred to in Jude, uh, all the chapters, uh, verse 6 of all the chapters of Jude, says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness, for the judgment of the great day. So at the judgment. Angels also will be judged. And in that context. Uh, this holding tank. If you will. Uh, people who know law enforcement know that. You get put into a holding tank. While you're waiting to be processed. And then you go to prison after you've been convicted. That's in, a, in effect what Tartarus is. Okay. Uh, so. What we have here is. Uh, Three words, one that refers to the place of the dead in general. That would be both the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. And then we have a, that's called Sheol Hades. I call it both words, Sheol Hades. Then we have Gehenna, which is the lake of fire, which is the final uh, punishment hell. And then we have the holding cell for the angels, uh, which is called Tartarus. Three different hells. And if you don't know the context of that, and you're just reading in the Bible and it says hell, you, you don't know what it's talking about, right? So, but we need to look at Sheol Hades a little closer because this is the intermediate state idea of those who have died, okay? So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that uh, specifically in Luke chapter 16. But first I want to remind you of what Ecclesiastes 12.7 says. It says that uh, 
at death, the body returns to the ground where it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. By the way, the book of Revelation says that the person in charge of Hades, the person who has the keys to Hades, is Jesus, not the devil. Okay? The devil's never been to Hades. He will, he will have some time during the kingdom period where he will be there, prob- probably in Tartarus as well, and then he will be cast into the lake of fire. But he is not there now, and he is not in charge of it when he gets there. He's a prisoner there. Okay? So all this nonsense about going to the devil and the devil shoving bodies in there. You hear all these idiots who have visions of all this stuff. They've been, they've been eating too many pizzas, or they've been reading too many secular books. It's not biblical. Okay, uh, So be careful of that, that kind of thinking. So this Sheol Hades, this place of the dead in the Hebrew mind is a very different place than the Greek uh, concept of the netherworld. And Jesus refers to this in Luke 16, uh, beginning at verse 19. Now I want to give you the context for this. Some people believe this is a uh, parable. Uh, If it is, it's the only parable Jesus ever referred to somebody by name. And even if it is a parable, Jesus never said something in a parable that wasn't real about the context of the parable, right? When he said a man had two sons, there are people who have two sons, and sons do the things that he said. So to excuse this on the basis that it's a parable and doesn't give us insight strikes me as people who just want to deny the process, okay? So it is in the context All of these parables that are talked about in the previous chapter and the uh, story of the unrighteous steward and now the story of the rich man and Lazarus are all in the context of people who do not heed the law and the prophets. They don't listen to the words of Moses and obey in caring for others and obeying the commandments. That's the context. And so we get to chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And besides that, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. When I was a kid, I'd read that. I thought, dogs licking sores? I didn't realize that dogs will actually do that. You know, uh, they'll, they'll come up and try to heal your sore by licking it. So here is a man who is seen by this rich man. He is laid at his gate. He is desperate for food. He is visibly ailing and nothing is being done for him. By a guy who has his new outfits and opens the gates and goes past it day in and day out. This is not a guy who doesn't care about people on the other side of the world. He doesn't care about the beggar at his gates. Remember, tzedakah in the book of Moses is to be given within your gates. It's your local help that you are to be doing that. So he is violating 
that command. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I love that. Um, I love the imagery that the angels come at death and carry someone away. We are not alone at death. And this poor beggar who was alone in the world was not alone in his death. He was carried to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now the rich man is alone and in torment. And he can see Lazarus comforted in Abraham's bosom. Now Abraham's bosom is a term used in this time period of Jesus to be in intimate place with him. The Bible talks about John leaning on Jesus' breast. talks about Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, has revealed him. It's the closest connection of, uh, of two people who are, who are comforting and, and in communication with one another. And so to be with Abraham is to be with God. Okay? And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides this, between us, and you, there is, notice that, us and you, singular you, plural us. Um, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over here from to you uh, would not be able. And that none may cross over from there to us. Why would somebody want to cross over from Abraham's bosom to the other? Because these are people who have compassion on those who suffer. And that's why they're not suffering. And so that those who are suffering and cared only about themselves can't continue to care about themselves and come over, that gulf is in place. Interesting. He said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Bring Lazarus back. Interesting that Jesus raised the Lazarus. Right? But he said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now we know that, that there were people who not only wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus after he was raised from the dead. It didn't bring belief. That's why the book of Revelation says, those who are filthy, stay filthy. Those who are clean, stay clean. Pick a road and get on it. So, what we have here is a focus to heed the law and the prophets before we die. And the place that, uh, that we will 
take after death is fixed in this life. But the format gives us some insight into Sheol Hades. The poor man dies carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Uh, the rich man is in Hades and is in agony and tormented, uh, separate from Abraham and God because of his rejection of Moses and the prophets and his disobedience in caring for others. And there's a great gulf, a great abyss, if you will, or a pit that's spoken of throughout the scriptures that separates these two areas, even though they can see one another. The idea here is that after death we are conscious and that we can find comfort or we can find agony. But it is not the final state of the afterlife because it is a place where there is no body. The rich man, is his body is specifically said to be buried. It is likely that Lazarus' body was not buried because he was a unclean, poor person with no family. And often their bodies would just be left or thrown into a place of, of, of refuge. So the idea here is that both of these persons, their spirit is conscious. They can communicate. They can be comforted. They can be tormented. But this is not the final state. This is not post-resurrection. This is between death and resurrection. Now, the term Abraham's bosom is also associated in Judaism with the Garden of Eden. Not the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were in, but in a place called the Garden of Eden and sometimes called paradise. You've heard that term. Paradise is a translation for the Garden of Eden or a place that is wonderful, right? So apparently in Hades, in Sheol Hades, there are two places. A place called Abraham's bosom or paradise and a place of torment with a great gulf fixed between them. And that at death the angels would carry uh, the, uh, the righteous to paradise to be comforted as they await the resurrection and there the unrighteous would be taken to a place and they would find torment and difficulty awaiting their final judgment and their final state. So, you recall on uh, at the crucifixion, also in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter uh, 23, uh, verses 40 to 43, on the cross, the two thieves were, uh, were hung with Jesus. And one was mocking Jesus and said, Save yourself and us. And the other one said, Do you not fear God? We're rightly condemned for what we've done. But this man has done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Now, where is the kingdom? After the resurrection. And Jesus says, I won't wait that long. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So where did Jesus go when the Apostles' Creed says he descended into Hades? He went to the paradise part. He didn't go to the torment part. And the thief went with him. Okay? So we have Sheol Hades. We have uh, the place that is comfort. And we have the place that is torment. 
the idea for many theologians is that at death, people would go to Sheol Hades, either to comfort in Abraham's bosom, also called paradise, where they are conscious and await the promise of the resurrection, or they would go to torment and agony in Hades, waiting uh, the resurrection and judgment and the second death. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who wrote quite a bit on this and also did a number of sermons on there, called this East Hell and West Hell. Uh, there was at that time Gulf uh, gasoline. I don't know how many of you remember Gulf gasoline. But Gulf gasoline had, two, had a round emblem and it had two spaces and in the middle was another color and it said Gulf. And he said, that's it. Okay? There's a separation between the good part and the bad part in that sense. So, uh, the Apostles' Creed says that he descended into Hades. Obviously, he descended into the place of paradise because that's what he told the thief on the cross where the dead are comforted uh, and would have been very comforted by the arrival of the Messiah about to bring about the resurrection. Now, you might say, wait a minute though. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Lord is not in Sheol, Hades. The Lord has ascended and has sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right? So, what happened? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I will answer that. And that's about as far as I'll get today. And I'll have to cover the final state when I cover... Uh, some of the other things ne next week. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 8, it says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home or present with the Lord. Therefore, whether we uh, we have as our ambition, whether we are at home uh, with the Lord or absent from the Lord, to be pleasing to Him. So, again, this is in preparation for the judgment, which is the next verse. Paul seems to indicate that those who belong to the Lord are not in Sheol, Hades, but they are with the Lord. Now, what does this mean? Well, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll take a look at another text. Chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians verses 1 to 6 says, Paul says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. And I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of this man I will boast, but not on my own behalf will I boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. Now, this is an odd passage. And a lot of people think that Paul is about to give a talk about his own visions and his own dreams. And he's doing it in the third person. 
But that's not what he says. He says, I knew somebody 14 years ago who was caught up to the third heaven and saw paradise and heard words that cannot be spoken. I will boast about that guy, but I'm not going to boast about my own visions. I'm only going to boast about my weaknesses, which is what he's going to do in the rest of the chapter. He's going to talk about all the things that happened because he prayed for God to take that thorn away, right? Now the question is, who is this other guy? Many theologians believe it's Paul speaking in the third person. I don't. Some believe he's just talking about another guy who we don't know. And some of us believe that he may be in referring to the Apostle John. Who in the book of Revelation was caught up into heaven. And heard words that when he started to write them down was told, don't write these down. These words are unspeakable. So, whether this is John's revelation or another person's revelation that matches John's, we don't know, but I don't think it's Paul's. Paul said, I'm going to boast on that person. He was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise, which means paradise is no longer in Sheol, Hades. It's in the third heaven. And he says that uh, this person, I don't know whether he did this in the body, whether he was actually caught up into heaven bodily, or it was a vision. God knows whether it was a vision or whether it was actual caught up there. Okay? And again, it doesn't matter whether it's a vision of heaven or you're actually in heaven, it's going to look the same. Right? So, at some point, what we have is uh, a reference now to the third heaven, paradise being there, but are there people there with the Lord? Well, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So we at least know that the martyrs are there. And this is why we refer to them as being under the altar, the altar in heaven. Now, the problem is there's two altars in heaven, right? There's the big altar and there's the prayer altar. Which altar is it? Well, what are they doing? Are they sacrificing? They've already sacrificed. They are in the, at the memorial altar, right? This is why traditionally... In churches, if you go into traditional churches, you will see the clergy buried around the front of the church and the people buried just outside because it is showing, it is doing with the body a, a resemblance of what is going on with the spirit. And if you've ever seen the Vatican and you've seen the big altar, you'll see there's stairways down there. That's where all the popes are buried and the clergy are buried in that context. 
So the idea is that the church has always understood this. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Present with the Lord who is seated at the right hand of God the Father at the altar of prayers. Able to speak even to God. So somehow this paradise in Sheol Hades got transferred to the third heaven. So when did that happen? Well, let me give you another verse. I'm down to my last two verses. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. I want you to catch this. What it says is, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he took with him a group of, of captives. He led a procession with him into heaven. And then he gave gifts on earth. And he talks about those, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. In other words, he takes the righteous dead with him and he gives gifts to the the church on earth that they may grow in grace and in knowledge, which is what the rest of this text is about. Now he is quoting Psalm 68. So I'd like you to turn there real quick. Psalm 68, verse 6, he says, God, remember Lazarus? Alone? God makes a home for the lonely. He calls out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in the parched land. Now he's talking about going through the wilderness and he would bring the righteous into the land and let the other ones die in the wilderness. But the imagery here is being used by Paul to refer to the same separation happening at the ascension of Jesus. He empties out paradise and brings it with him so that they are ever with the Lord. And he leaves the torment part of Hades For those who await judgment in that sense. So, the idea here is that now, with the ascension of the Lord, those of us who die in the Lord are carried by the angels directly to the presence of God. To the place of the Lord with the Father and with all the righteous dead. And the scripture tells us in Thessalonians... That when he comes back, he will bring them with him. And then the resurrection will take place. So the intermediate state is a place where our loved ones are comforted in the presence of God and the Lamb. And with the saints are awaiting the resurrection. And apparently they're a little impatient Because Paul says that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to be re-embodied. 
and in the kingdom to come, and then in the final heaven and the new Jerusalem. But for those who don't know the Lord, the suffering that they have now is nothing compared to the ultimate suffering that will be theirs in the lake of fire, which is the final state. And we will talk about that uh, later. I just want to uh, read one more time to you or recite to you Second Corinthians 5, 1 to 8. Paul says, If this body is destroyed, we will have a new one that is heavenly. And that's what we desire. We don't want to be naked. That's why they are saying, Lord, how long? How long? Because they want to be re-embodied. They are not marching through the streets of gold. They are not uh, you know, throwing parties. They are comforted. They are resting. That's why we say rest in peace. They are at peace with God, awaiting the time when they will join with us in the resurrection. And that is the intermediate state as the scripture presents it. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll...